<laughs> well, thanks, Martin, for a really generous introduction. Can I acknowledge first and foremost we're meeting on the lands of the Ngunnawal people? Dara Nuna, Dara Ngunnawal, Yungu, Nalamanyan, Dunimanyan, Ngunnawal Wadi, Dara Wadi, Dindi, Wangaravanjinyan. I want to acknowledge any Indigenous people present and commit myself as a member of the government to the implementation in full of the Uluru Statement from the Heart. Uh, it's a real treat to be uh, introduced by Martin, somebody whose uh, career uh, has uh, not only outshone but also mirrored my own, uh, in the sense that I moved from being an ANU professor into uh, politics. Uh, Martin has now moved from heading the public service uh, to his present role at ANU. And I did want to build on what he said about Alan Gingell. Alan was uh, a mentor to me among so many others uh, and really reminded me that uh, it isn't too early to think about the role that you can play in mentoring others. Uh, many of you may think of yourselves as just being at the beginning, uh, but don't forget that there's always people who are looking at you as, as uh, exemplars and that spending that time in a busy career to nurture the careers of others might ultimately be the most impactful thing you do. I expect that's going to be the sub subject of a lot of the eulogies uh, in Alan's memorial service tomorrow. I also want to uh, uh, acknowledge the Sir Roland Wilson Foundation and its role in strengthening the links between academic research and public policy, uh, and uh, particularly to see that the way that partnership's been extended to Charles Darwin University. Uh, Roland Wilson was revered as an intellectual force, one of the great public servants who helped shape economic policy over many decades. Every story I've read about Roland Wilson suggests he was a problem solver and not just in the economic policy sense. During World War II petrol rationing, he famously built himself an electric vehicle out of junkyard scraps, including a motor from an old crane and charger bulbs smuggled out of the United States. I wrote about it in a Canberra Times opinion column titled Electric Vehicles Make the Weekend More Fun, mainly so the newspaper would run the photo of Roland Wilson in his three-wheeled vehicle outside Old Parliament House. Uh, in the era before we put water in Lake Burley Griffin, Wilson personally built a swimming pool in his backyard to cool off during the hot, dry Canberra summers. Uh, and he must have needed the pool after all that excavation work. Uh, drawing on the inspiration from Wilson, I want to talk about an electrifying tool today that can help the Australian Public Service better use its resources. It's a tool that allows the Public Service to dig a bit deeper, to solve policy problems and deliver effective programs. That tool is the randomised trial. Randomised trials are a simple yet effective way to measure what works. In medicine, randomised trials date back to James Lynn's work on scurvy and Ambrose Parr's work on treating battlefield burns. The results from the latest randomised trials never cease to surprise me, which is the point about a good evaluation. If you're not getting surprised, you're not doing it right. Another way to put this is a plea for humility. We politicians draw on a lot of excellent advice and research from academics, bureaucrats, think tanks, peak bodies and others to design public policies. After all that advice and research, after all the debate and consultation, it can be easy to be seduced into believing this will work. Let me give you an example of what I mean. A study published, published last year analysed 10 different job training programs in the United States. 
Doubtless the people who designed every one of those 10 programs were confident that each of them would work. There's already plenty of evidence about the types of training people might need, the way to deliver training, who should deliver the training, and so on. The 10 sets of program designers would have had access to thousands of relevant research studies and the very latest data visualisation tools. I expect they were thoughtful, altruistic, and enthusiastic when they designed the programs. There is no reason to think the people that had designed those programs were any less smart or caring than the people in this room. In fact, they probably knew more about job training than any of us. And yet, designing a successful job, job training program is difficult. The 10 US programs I mentioned represent a range of job training strategies. Each program was evaluated in a sizeable randomised trial, tracking earnings over six years. So, how many had a positive impact on earnings? Maybe you know where I'm going. Perhaps five out of 10, three out of 10. I'm afraid you need to go lower. Only one, the Year Up program, has a po had a positive, significant impact on earnings. The good news is Year Up increased long-term earnings by over 7,000 US dollars a year. As the research points out, a lot needs to go right for a training program to boost earnings. It must have a sufficient impact on the credentials earned, those credentials must have labour market value, and the participants must find jobs. Put another way, training programs can fail because participants don't complete their studies, because the credentials have low economic returns, or because participants don't move into employment. We need rigorous evaluation, not because program designers are foolish or careless or stupid, but because designing good programs is really, really difficult. Even the best sounding programs can turn out to be ineffective. That pattern's typical, and it reminds us that we need to be humble about how effective our PET program really is. If you're a person who works on job training programs, it may reassure you to know that for every 10 pharmaceutical treatments that enter clinical trials, only one, on average, makes it out to the market. Nine out of 10 medical drugs that looked promising in the lab fail to make it through the three stages of clinical trials. Just as we do in health, Social policy experts need to be honest about removing or redesigning ineffective programs so funding can be directed to others, like Year Up, that pass the test. A feature of these and other randomised trials is they answer the question, did the program work, by trying to determine what would have happened if the program was not implemented. This isn't always obvious. Maybe the patients who went to the doctor would have gotten better anyway. Perhaps the student whose parents enrolled them at a tutoring program would have done pretty well at school anyway. Or maybe a job training program that appeared to be unsuccessful due to weak economic conditions actually did help people find jobs uh, better than if they hadn't received the training. So the challenge is to know what would have happened in any of these scenarios. In other words, to know the counterfactual. The appeal of randomised trials is there a credible way to create a, a, a straightforward counterfactual. 
Suppose we decided to test the impact of caffeine on concentration by doing an experiment with everyone in this room. If we tossed a coin for each person, we'd end up with roughly half in the heads group and half in the tails group. And then comes the experiment. When you get to the barista, she discreetly tosses a coin. Heads, she gives you a regular caffeinated coffee. Tails, she gives you a decaf coffee. Ethics complaint letters can be addressed to Dr. Parkinson. The two groups, heads and tails, won't be identical, but they'll be very similar. And that means that if we found that those in the caffeine group were able to concentrate for longer, it would be reasonable to conclude that on average, caffeine is performance enhancing, at least for people like those in this room. Now, what would have happened without randomization? If we just compared those who chose coffee with those who chose decaf, then the selection effects would have mucked up the experiment. Perhaps those who wanted full strength coffee were the kinds of people who prioritised alertness, who were already going to be switched on. Or maybe the coffee drinkers were those who were extra tired after a big night, who were already going to be a bit sluggish. Without a credible counterfactual, the observational data wouldn't have told us the true impact of caffeine on performance. Now, the problem with observational studies isn't just a cute little academic uh, ex exercise. In medicine, researchers using observational data had long observed that moderate alcohol drinkers tended to be healthier than non-drinkers or than heavy drinkers. This led many doctors to advise their patients that a drink a day might be good for your health. Yet the latest meta-analyses published in the Journal of the American Medical Association now conclude that this was a selection effect. In some studies, the population of non-drinkers included unhealthy former alcoholics who'd gone sober. It turns out that compared with non-drinkers, Light drinkers are actually healthier on other dimensions, including weight, exercise, and diet. Studies that use random differences in genetic predisposition to alcohol find no evidence that light drinking is good for your health. A daily alcoholic beverage isn't the worst thing you can do, but it's not extending your life. And that problem extends to just about every study you've ever read that compares outcomes for people who choose to consume one kind of food or beverage with those who make different consumption choices. Health writers Peter Atiyah and Bill Gifford point out that our food choices and eating habits are unfathomably complex. So observational studies are almost always hopelessly confounded. A better approach is that adopted by the US National Institutes of Health which is conducting randomised nutrition studies. These require volunteers to live in a dormitory-style setting where their diets are randomly changed from week to week. Nutritional randomised trials are much costlier than nutritional epidemiology, but they have one big advantage. We can believe the results. They inform us about causal impacts, not mere correlations. We know that a credible counterfactual matters because researchers have compared well-conducted randomised trials as a yardstick with what you'd get 
from a non-randomised evaluation. Very frequently, the two sets of data, randomised and observational, don't match. For example, non-randomised studies suggested free distribution of home computers had large positive effects on students' test scores. Randomised evaluations showed they had in fact had little benefit. It's not always ethical or feasible to randomly allocate government policies in this way. You can't randomly allocate some people to receive a defence policy or a foreign policy and others not to get that policy. But you might be surprised how often it is possible. There's numerous international examples of policies or programs that have been subjected to randomised trials. Housing subsidies for homeless people, crime prevention, policing methods and restorative justice programs, weight loss programs, microfinance programs, parenting programs, preschool and after school care. Now it's true that random allocation isn't the only way to conduct a credible counterfactual. We can also use a range of quasi-experimental methods and in my past life as an academic, I've used some of those research tools. But these methods have more tricks and traps that make them hard to do well. And even when done well, they can be pretty hard to communicate to policymakers and the public. So whenever we want to know what works, we should first look to randomised trials. Any policymaker will want to know the answer to, did it work? But while that question may be central, it's far from the only evaluation question of interest. Evaluation efforts can also be directed towards finding out whether a program reached the target population, or whether it was delivered as intended, on time and on budget. That work's important for continuous improvement. And it often occurs as new programs are being refined and improved. It's crucial too for how we interpret results of randomised trials. For example, four studies found that students in developing countries randomly assigned to receive textbooks did no better on standardised tests than students without textbooks. Naive response might simply be, textbooks don't matter. But it's really useful to unpack the findings. In the first study, schools put the textbooks in storage rather than delivering them to the classroom. In the second study, free textbooks led parents to reduce the amount they spent on their children's education. In the third study, teachers did not incorporate textbooks into their classroom work. And the final study found that textbooks did help the top students, but not the lower performing students who were unable to read. Understanding the context of the studies helps researchers and policymakers form a fuller picture of the intervention. In recent years, calls for better evaluation of government policies and programs have been growing louder. The 2019 Independent Review of the APS, chaired by David Thody, said that the APS needs to reverse the long-term decline in research and evaluation expertise and build integrated policy capability. Research Commission for the review found the Australian Public Service's approach to evaluation is piecemeal in both scope and quality, and this diminishes accountability and is a significant barrier to evidence-based policymaking. 
findings were similar in the 2022 independent review into Australia's response to COVID-19, led by Peter Shergold. It said existing evaluation efforts are typically piecemeal and low quality and rarely translate into better policy making. The 2023 Disrupting Disadvantage Report, published by CEDA, said, without consistent program evaluation and implementing improvements based on data, evidence and analysis, ineffective programs are allowed to continue even as effective programs are stopped. CEDA said they had examined a sample of 20 federal government programs for the total expenditure of more than $200 billion. 95% of those programs were found not to have been properly evaluated. The Productivity Commission has made recommendations about the need for evaluation in several reports. Its 2020 Indigenous Evaluation Strategy paper said, the reality is that evidence about what works and why remains thin. The Interim Economic Inclusion Advisory Committee's recent report recommended evaluations, including randomised controlled trials and effective use of administrative data. It suggested that funding should be reallocated from things that do not work to things that do, and that approaches that are found to deliver the best outcomes can be scaled up. All strong arguments from a range of respected bodies. And the common theme from all these reports is that government should commission more and better quality evaluations, be more transparent about evaluation findings, and make better use of evaluation evidence. The Albanese government agrees. We've committed to establishing an evaluation unit during the last election, and we delivered on our promise in the recent budget. We announced $10 million over four years to establish a central evaluation fa function within Treasury. It'll be known as the Australian Centre for Evaluation. As you can imagine, given my earlier comments, a core role for the centre will be to champion randomised trials and other high quality impact evaluations. It will partner with government agencies to initiate a small number of high quality impact evaluations each year. These evaluations will help to build momentum by demonstrating the value of high quality evaluation methods, sharing lessons across the Australian government and building agencies' evaluation capabilities. Most evaluation activities, however, will be continued to be conducted or commissioned by agencies. Consequently, the Australian Centre for Evaluation will also support and partner with agencies to build their capabilities and prepare their own evaluations, multiplying the volume and quality of evaluations APS-wide. Over the long term, the centre will do much more than this. As a part of the Albanese government's APS reform plan, the centre's remit is to embed an enduring culture of evaluation in all its forms across the Australian government. That'll involve further work to support the adoption of Commonwealth Evaluation Policy and Toolkit, building on the efforts to date led by the Department of Finance. The sector will also oversee efforts to build evaluation capability across the Australian Public Service. This includes leadership of the new Commonwealth Evaluation Community of Practice, which has already grown into nearly 400 members since it was launched in September last year. Finally, the centre will play a critical role in the budget process, reviewing the evaluation plans and use of evaluation evidence for selected budget proposals. The centre's approach will be underpinned by strong collaborative partnerships. Unlike an auditor-style role, 
the Australian Centre for Evaluation will be a trusted advisor and partner. It'll work with agencies across the Australian Government to rebuild in-house evaluation expertise and reduce the reliance on external providers. That collaborative approach will involve working closely with states, territories, not-for-profits, academia and international partners. So as we bunker down for winter, let me leave you with one final example of a randomised trial and the powerful lessons government and policymakers can learn. It involves the Victorian Government's Healthy Homes Program, a free program rolled out over three years from 2018 to 2020 to upgrade the energy efficiency of uh, a thousand homes of low-income Victorians with a health or social care need. The aim of the Healthy Homes Program was to improve the health outcomes of vulnerable people by spending around $2,800 on making their homes warmer. Upgrade options included draft sealing, installing insulation, replacing or servicing existing heaters and improving window furnishing. The trial found the Healthy Homes Program increased average indoor temperature by a third of a degree and exposure to temperatures below 18 degrees was reduced by 43 minutes per day. It might sound minor, but making homes warmer and more energy efficient led to savings of $887 per person in the healthcare system and $85 per person in energy costs during the winter months. In other words, the upgrade paid for itself within three years and the full program costs, including admin costs, would be paid back in less than seven years. We want to see more trials like that. As Treasurer Jim Chalmers and Finance Minister Katie Gallagher have noted, it's vital we evaluate more programs, creating a better evidence base about what works and what does not. The Albanese Government's committed to improving the quality of evaluations across government. Thank you and enjoy your coffee break. Yeah, we'll do a bit of Q&A.